Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 99 of Unsweetened Sio, the podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have the one and only Dr. Robert Lustig with us. Dr. Lustig is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at UCSF. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist with expertise in metabolism, obesity, and nutrition. He is one of the leaders of the current anti-sugar movement that is changing the food industry. Dr. Lustig graduated from MIT in 1976 and received his MD from Cornell University Medical College in 1980. He also received his Master's of Studies in Law degree at University of California, Hastings College of the Law in 2013. He is the author of the popular books, Fat Chance, The Hacking of the American Mind, and his newest release now available, Metabolical, The Lore and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. He is the Chief Science Officer of the nonprofit Eat Real. He's on the advisory board of the Center for Humane Technology and Simplex Health, and he is the Chief Medical Officer of BioLumen Technologies, Fugle, and Kaylin Health. So all hail Dr. Lustig. So excited to have you here today. And I'd like to argue that you're not one of the leaders, but really the leader of the current anti-sugar movement. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Siobhan. I, I, I don't accept that moniker. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who have contributed to this. Um, I just happen to be the loudest. <laughs> Well, thank goodness for that. We are all so grateful for really your tireless effort that is going into all the work that you're doing. So thank you from all of us in this anti-sugar community. Hey, it's a job. (laughs) Well, for anyone, I can't imagine that people do not or have not heard of you. If you have not seen his college lecture on YouTube, Sugar, the Bitter Truth, I think it actually has over 13 million views now. You need to go and listen to that because from what I understand, that's really what kind of kicked this all off. I I guess so. Um, You know, I thought I was giving a talk to about 200 um, uh, members of the UCSF community. I didn't even know there was a video uh, uh, tape machine in the back. And um, and then all of a sudden this happened. So it's it's all pretty weird. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, tell us a little bit about your story and your background and how you came into this role that you have now, <laughs> now that you're now in. Well, it's, it sure isn't because I was looking for it, that's for sure. You know, I mean, look, I went to med school. I was always interested in endocrinology. I did a term paper on the thymus gland in seventh grade. At wow. that time, it was an endocrine organ. Then it became an immune organ. And then we realized oh, it's an endocrine immune organ, um, you know, many years later. So I got hooked then. And then I did a term paper in high school on the hypothalamus. Uh, 
because uh, Guillemin and Shally had, you know, isolated the first hypothalamic releasing factor back in 1967. So that, you know, really, really geared me up to be a neuroendocrinologist, you know, understanding how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. And to be honest with you, I, you know, was interested in nutrition. I majored in nutritional biochemistry in college at MIT. Um, and, uh, you know, I was very interested in the concept of vitamin deficiencies and how, you know, missing one nutrient could cause, you know, such significant disease and how you could replace it and, you know, things would get better and all that was good. And then I went to med school and they beat it out of me. My whole interest in nutrition is basically, oh, you don't have to worry about that. I mean, that's not important. And, you know, it's just all this, it's just about calories. And I was really kind of surprised because, you know, the whole of my entire undergraduate career was essentially dissed, like, so what? And there was virtually no nutrition training in med school at all. And, you know, I was paying good money for tuition, you know, and these are the experts and they know how to take care of patients and I should listen to them. And basically for the next 20 years, I kind of practiced the way they taught me to. And um, my patients weren't getting better. And, you know, I started into obesity research really in 1994 because of the discovery of this hormone called leptin. And leptin is this hormone that's made in the fat cells, goes to the brain and tells the brain, you know, you've got enough energy on board to burn energy properly and also to engage in expensive metabolic processes such as puberty and pregnancy. So this was neuroendocrinology. This is what I trained for. So it made sense that I should be, uh, you know, uh, an obesity researcher. Up to that point, I was studying sex differentiation of the brain. But the bottom line is that no matter what I did, my patients didn't get better. And so I moved from uh, University of Wisconsin to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis in 1995, right after leptin was discovered. And what greeted me was a cadre of patients who had brain tumors. You know, children get brain tumors relatively frequently. And these children had all received surgery and radiation to try to kill the brain tumor. They'd all survived their brain tumor, but they, in the process, became massively obese. Now, this phenomenon had been known since 1901. It was first uh, described by Freelich and Babinski back then, and it was called hypothalamic obesity because damage to the hypothalamus leads to intractable massive weight gain. And in 1975, one of the fathers of uh, obesity research in America, George Bray, had admitted eight of these kids to his uh, clinical research center at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and had basically locked the door, thrown away the key and given these children 500 calories a day for a month. Want to guess what their weight did? Went up. <laughs> went up. Yeah. 500 calories a day, yeah. and it went up. How does that work? Well, the answer is because these kids would rather store it than burn it. And the reason was because they weren't seeing their leptin. So I know about leptin now, 
And it was clear to me that these kids, because of their hypothalamic damage, could not transduce the leptin signal. So the question is, how can you help them? Well, what's downstream of the leptin signal? What does the leptin do to make the body go into storage mode? And there, the answer was insulin. So we knew these kids had very high insulin levels. We also knew that damage to the hypothalamus in animal studies led to enormously high insulin uh, secretion. Basically what it meant was that the brain was starving because those neurons that transduced the leptin was, were dead. And because the brain was starving, they were in overdrive to store more and insulin is the way to store it. And so they would release more and more insulin to generate more and more fat, to generate more and more leptin, but they still couldn't see it. And so they kept gaining weight. So I was charged with trying to like fix these kids, take care of them. Now, I didn't, I, you know, I, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I can't fix a hypothalamus, but I could stop their insulin. So there's a drug called octreotide that suppressed insulin release. And so we postulated maybe if we gave these kids octreotide to get their insulin down, maybe it would help them. So we did a study and lo and behold, not only did they lose weight, but this was really the important thing. They started feeling better. These were all kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept. These kids, the parents would come to clinic and say, you know, this is double jeopardy. I, you know, my kids survived the tumor only to succumb to the therapy because they had lost interest in everything around them. And then we gave them this drug, this insulin suppressor, and all of a sudden they got active. One kid started competitive swimming, two kids started lifting weights at home, one kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs, you know. These were kids who did nothing. And now they were not just doing something, they were actually quite active. So we built a quality of life questionnaire into the next double blind placebo control trial. And sure enough, the same thing happened. And we showed in that study that the lower we got the insulin, the better the quality of life. So we then did this in adults and we showed the lower we got the insulin, the better the energy expenditure, the better the resting energy expenditure. So what this told us in no uncertain terms was that the biochemistry drives the behavior. The two behaviors that everyone associates with obesity, gluttony and sloth, is really anatomic leptin resistance leading to insulin over secretion. And if you can fix that, if you can fix either the leptin resistance or the insulin over secretion, you can fix the patient. And so that's how we ran our clinic here at UCSF for the next 17 years, get the insulin down. And we had better success than everyone else. And the reason was because we gave up on calories because a calorie is not a calorie. Now, it is true that not everybody was helped by that. So then the question is, all right, why are all of these other kids' insulins high? Because they don't have brain tumors. And there the answer was because they have liver fat. And so because their liver was, was fatty, their pancreas had to make extra insulin to make the liver do its job. 
So instead of having a brain defect, they had a liver defect. And when we targeted that, those patients got better too. So the question is what made that liver fat? And that's what happened in 2007 when I realized the answer was sugar. Because sugar is metabolized in the liver just like alcohol. Alcohol makes fatty liver. Sugar makes fatty liver. Children don't drink alcohol, but they sure do consume sugar. And so that's when colleagues uh, at UCSF and Turo University, uh, Osteopathic College in Vallejo, and I started working on exactly what's going on in the liver to turn sugar into fat. And that's what led to the 2009 YouTube video. And that's what led to the nature comment. And that's what led to basically the rest of my career. And so I went where the data took me. Yeah, I mean, that's such an amazing discovery. Um, and when did you start really kind of educating you know, parents too? Because I don't think a lot of parents realize, I didn't realize that a kid could have fatty liver. You know, you could you really think of that in alcoholics. I can't, I mean, it just must have been shocking for parents to discover that something their kids have. And how do you start, yeah, turning that education to actually what they're eating and, and how to change that? Well, so I started doing that as soon as I figured it out. And that was in 2006, 2007. And that's what we did with our clinic. And basically what we realized is it's the sugar in processed foods that is driving all of this. It's not the sugar that the kids eating in candy and ice cream. It's the sugar that was put in the food by the food industry on, you know, for their own purposes and basically not disclosing. I mean, it's there, but it's not there. It said total sugars. They didn't say what they had done. And after all, there are 262 names for sugar and the food industry uses all of them in, very specifically to hide it. And so as I did more and more research. And as I came up against more and more resistance from scientists, and then realized all of those scientists were being paid off by the processed food industry, specifically to discredit me, the whole world basically opened up. And I realized that this is on purpose, that this is actually the you know, their strategy, their goal. In the same way tobacco, you know, uh, said, you know, nicotine is not addictive, but they kept plying their uh, um, cigarettes, lower and lower tar, but higher and higher nicotine. They knew what they were doing. Well, the same thing with sugar. They kept adding sugar because the real, they realized the more sugar they added, the more you buy. And that's because sugar is addictive. And so when we came to that realization, then it became very clear what's going on. What, not just in terms of the science, but in terms of the politics. So I wrote my first book, Fat Chance in 2012, recognizing that sugar was the problem and people needed to understand that. I wrote my second book, Hacking of the American Mind in 2017, because I realized that diet was a primary contributor to both addiction and depression and people needed to understand that. And this new book, Metabolical, basically is half science, half expose. You know, if it was a political book, it would be a kiss and tell, but really because it's about diabetes, it's more like a piss and tell. <laughs> but the fact is I name names. 
you know, I'm, I'm retired. I can, you know, say what I want. I'm not worried about the, uh, you know, the aftermath. And I'm, you know, it's time to fix the industry. It's time to fix the problem. And what I, so what I do in this book is I very clearly call out the people who did this. And I very specifically make it clear what has to happen in order to reverse this. What each stakeholder has to do in order to be able to make this work and how to fix healthcare. Because you can't fix healthcare until you fix health. You can't fix health until you fix diet. And you can't fix diet until you know what the hell is wrong. And we have gotten what is wrong, wrong for the last 50 years. So this book hopefully is the final stake in the heart of the low fat diet, of the calorie and the ultra processed food. I think so. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the title of the book, Metabolical, and what it means, how you came up with that, because I think that's so interesting. So it's a portmanteau of two words crushed together. So metabolic, which is the workings of the body, and diabolical, which is the workings of big food, big pharma, and big government. And I explain in the book how this is diabolical. So Perhaps your listeners are familiar with a philosophical slash economic term called moral hazard. So moral hazard's a big deal in medicine. We all learn about moral hazard. Moral hazard is making money off the misfortunes of others. That's moral hazard, okay? Sort of the economic version of schadenfreude, you know? delighting in the misery of others, okay? So the insurance industry is a perfect example of moral hazard. They didn't make you sick. You know, you got sick, but they're really happy when you do get sick. And the reason is because they get to raise your rates and they still get to say no. That's the casino model, pay to play and set the rates, right? And that's why the casinos make, you know, that's why there's Las Vegas, okay, is the casino model, because they make boatloads of money, all right? And they're happy when you win, because that means you're coming back and you're going to lose. So the casino model worked for the insurance industry forever, and they made boatloads of money. But now, all of a sudden, because of Obamacare, you know, and you can think whatever you want about Obamacare, and I'm not here to tell you it's good or bad or indifferent, that's not the issue, The thing about Obamacare is it capped insurance company profits at 15%. Anything higher than that have to give back to the subscriber. So all of a sudden now the insurance company was capped as to what it could make. So actually for the first time now the insurance company wants you to be healthy because if you're healthy, that means they get to keep the profit instead of having to spend it on you. So they don't even know how to do that. So this is the problem with moral hazard. But in the book, I actually describe something new, immoral hazard. And what I I mean by that is when any specific industry company or a person rigs the game very specifically so that they can profit off the misery of others, that they actually create the, uh, the, the venue for being able to profit off the misery of others. Tobacco did that. 
Opioids did that. The oil industry did that, we now know. Well, it turns out the food industry has done the same. And in fact, pharma has done it as well. And in fact, government has done it. And in the book, I describe how each of these have generated their own immoral hazard to lead us to our current uh, place, because you have to call them out. You have to show the, the world how they did what they did, why they did what they did. Basically, uh, you know, you, you can't fix a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And that's true whether you're an individual or whether you're a food company or a pharma company or even government. You've got to know what the problem is. And that's what I try to do in this book explain the real problem yeah and from every aspect that you're you know which is no one else has really done you're and i really i've just read the introduction to your book and it's just i'm just blown away i'm so excited to read the entire thing um i really like that the two basic principles i want to talk about too throughout the book you know we always hear calories in calories out garbage um you talk about eat real food, you know, the eat real food thing, but your two basic your two basic principles, protect the liver and feed the gut. Can you talk to us a little more about that and what you sure. mean by that? Sure. So the question is, you know, the food industry pushes all sorts of stuff. And a lot of times what they push, they've got front of packaging labeling saying, oh, this is healthy. You know, there is no definition of healthy. In fact, there are many definitions of healthy and they're all wrong. And that's part of the issue. What is healthy? What is healthy? And no one knows. They say, oh, I know it when I see it. But in fact, I, I come up with a definition and it actually fits the data. It, it fits you know, the empiric data in the field. So what I say, you know, Michael Pollan famously said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Three clauses, seven words. All three clauses are wrong. <laughs> Eat food. Well, is Cheetos food? Not too much. Well, if you actually ate real food, you wouldn't eat too much. But if you eat processed food, you're actually never able to actually eat the right amount. And that was shown by Dr. Kevin Hall this past year uh, in a study that he had in uh, cell metabolism. And finally, mostly plants. Well, you know, Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are all vegan. So they're all mostly plants. They're all completely plants, but that doesn't make them good. So what I do is in the book, I actually use the science to make it much easier. Two clauses, six words, and you can remember these. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Any food that does both of those, protects the liver and feeds the gut, is healthy. Any food that does neither of those is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And the empiric data actually support this contention. Let me give you an example. Apple juice. So is apple juice healthy or unhealthy? Is it healthy or poison? Which is it? I know it's unhealthy. <laughs> well, so it, apples are healthy. Okay. okay. Apple juice doesn't protect the liver. 
And the reason is because the fiber has been removed. The insoluble fiber has been completely dissociated from the apple. It still has soluble fiber. It still has pectins and inulin, you know, the stuff that holds jelly together that's present in pretty much all fruit. And those, that soluble fiber has some beneficial functions because it can be metabolized by the colonic bacteria into short chain fatty acids, butyrate and propionate, which then are immunosuppressive and anti-insulin suppressive as well, which are good things and actually help your gut. They feed your gut, but they don't protect your liver because they don't set up the gel that normally the fiber within endogenous food, um, you know, real food, you know, before it's been macerated and, you know, completely uh, uh, disintegrated and dissociated. That gel that forms on the inside of the duodenum is, acts as a secondary barrier that prevents mono and disaccharides, sugars from getting to the liver to overwhelm it and flood it. Thus you are, would be protecting the liver with, a, with an apple, but you're not doing that with apple juice. So apple juice is somewhere in the middle. And actually, if you look at glycemic excursion, here's apples, they have a low glycemic excursion. Here's apple juice, they have a high glycemic excursion because they're not protecting the liver. What about applesauce? Halfway. Is applesauce more like apples or is applesauce more like apple juice? Answer, it's more like apple juice. So once you destroy that capability of being able to generate that barrier, you have basically flooded the liver. And so understanding the degree of food processing is absolutely essential for understanding whether or not any given food is healthy. And so the argument I make in the book is it's not what's in the food, it's what's been done to the food that matters. And you cannot learn that from a nutrition facts label. This is why we are all going to hell in a handbasket is because you don't know what the food is doing to you and you can't trust them to tell you. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, I think that concept of what's been done to the food is being more important than what's in the food. Just never even thought about that before, but it's so true. And it's so, like you said, we can't find that out from a label. You know, That's it's right. really hard as a consumer when you, even you are trying to eat healthy and make good choices, it's really misleading, you know, what's out there. So it's really almost impossible. And I hear a lot of my clients get very frustrated thinking they're making the best choice because they see something marked as all natural or healthy, but realizing well, it's no, just all the marketing. There's no definition of natural and there's essentially no yeah. definition of healthy. So, you know, what, whatever they say, it's the opposite. The way you need, you need to really look at it is if a food has a label, it's a warning label. That's how you <laughs> have to approach it. Yeah. That and means I love a label means something's been done to the food. Yes is there's no label on a broccoli. There's no label on a radish. There's no label on a carrot, okay? There is a label on carrot juice though. And that's the point. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very strong distinction. And you talk a lot too about um, in the book, the eight pathology, eight, eight pathologies that all belie chronic disease and how those 
can't be treated, you know, just by drugs and how it's really all about the food and nutrition, which is so different from what a doctor normally will say. So let's like speak into that a little bit, a, a little bit more, because I think that's so fascinating too. Sure. So all the doctors will tell you, you know, what we're suffering from is an epidemic of type two diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia and cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. These chronic metabolic diseases, the diseases of metabolic syndrome, they're called. That's the term, metabolic syndrome. And they will tell you those are the diseases. No, they're not. These are not the diseases. These are the things that have ICD-9 or 11 codes. These are the things doctors can bill for. But in fact, these are not the diseases. These are the symptoms of the disease that's actually going on inside the cells underlying, belying these uh, 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 things that we now call diseases. So it's really what's happening inside the cell. And so in the book, I describe the eight subcellular pathologies, the diseases that aren't diseases, if you will. I call them the hateful or the grateful eight. Because when those processes, those eight processes are working for you, you'll be 110 playing tennis. And when they're not working for you, you will be in a wheelchair with your legs amputated at age 40 on dialysis, waiting for your next stroke and waiting for the Grim Reaper. The question is, what are these eight and how do they work? Turns out when you actually look at these eight pathologies, and I'll name them in a moment, none of them are druggable. None of them are druggable. None of them. None of them. Yeah. None of them. They're all foodable. Real food gets inside the cell and can mitigate those eight pathologies. The drugs that we currently use for these diseases, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, these are just covering up the symptoms of the disease. The disease is still there. Basically, covering up the symptom of the disease does not fix the disease. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Yeah, okay, fine. You fix the headache. Now what? And that's what statins are, and that's what oral hypoglycemics are, and that's what... Um, antihypertensives are. They're not really fixing the problem. They're just fixing the symptom of the problem. So what are the real problems? What are those eight pathologies? I'm gonna name them, okay? And we can go into them in detail if you like, but time is always an issue. One, glycation, okay? The browning reaction, the Maillard reaction, the reason we paint barbecue sauce on our ribs. It's the reason for wrinkles. It's the reason for cataracts. It is the aging reaction. Number two, oxidative stress. Every time that Maillard reaction occurs or every time iron uh, works to try to um, oxidize something, whether it be in a, you know, uh, in a white cell or otherwise, you generate reactive oxygen species. Those reactive oxygen species can do damage unless they are quenched by an antioxidant. And this occurs within your cells all the time. It's standard, it's normal. Your mitochondria are a reactive oxygen species generation machine, okay? But they have to be quenched. They have to be detoxified. And that's done in the peroxisome by antioxidants. But what if you don't have enough antioxidants? 
Number three, mitochondrial dysfunction. So mitochondria is supposed to burn energy all the way to carbon dioxide and ATP, but sometimes they don't. And when they don't, then you get backup. When you get backup, that backup ends up generating fat. And that liver fat, especially muscle fat, leads to other chronic pathologies and insulin resistance, which is number four. So the inability to transduce the insulin signal. Again, none of these have ICD-9 codes, so they are not billable. You know, they don't have CPT codes. These are, you know, things that doctors don't learn how to treat because there's no drug. Number five, uh, in mem membrane instability. So you have a balloon. You take your finger and you try to poke a hole in the balloon. It comes back, right? It's, it's, it's flexible. It's, it's called membrane fluidity. But what if you take a, um, a pin? Now all of a sudden the balloon pops. How come your finger didn't do it, but a pin does? All right, well, that happens in neurons. Okay, and so you can actually destroy neurons very easily with just very little manipulation. Okay, and there are things that can help that membrane fluidity, like for instance, omega-3s. Inflammation. Now, people, of course, know about inflammation, but they don't necessarily know the source of the inflammation. And a lot of it comes from the gut, quite a bit of it. And uh, we're basically fomenting increased inflammation in the gut. It's the reason irritable bowel syndrome is up. It's the reason inflammatory bowel disease is up. It's the reason that celiac is up. It's the reason why we have more food allergies is because the intestine is supposed to serve as a barrier so that the intestinal contents don't make it into the bloodstream. But when that barrier breaks down, what it does is it lets cytokines and lipopolysaccharides and even bacteria into the bloodstream and that generates systemic inflammation and that causes disease and death. Number seven, methylation. So you're not supposed to have very many methyl groups on your DNA. And when you add a methyl group, what happens is that changes the transcription of those of that gene. And so you're now not necessarily expressing the, the proteins you need to express to take care of a certain problem. This is a particular issue in terms of chemotherapy, for instance, folate. It's a, uh, there's an enzyme called method, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase that is very much malleable and uh, dependent on the amount of folate. It can change your food intake. It's a, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of epigenetic changes that can happen because of methylation and food does that. And finally, number eight, the big one, autophagy. So autophagy is like garbage night. So your cells, because they're functional, because they're, you know, turning over and doing lots of stuff, they make junk. Okay. They make protein aggregates, they make defective mitochondria, they make you know, peroxidated membranes that all have to be cleared. And if they don't get cleared, the cell becomes more and more dysfunctional over time because it's not, they're not, the cells are not efficient. So those things have to basically be broken down and, base, and, and washed away. And if that happens uh, through a very specific process, and that process is easily interfered with. This is, by the way, why you sleep, because sleep is garbage night for the brain. Your brain is the most active organ in your body. It is working overtime. Your mitochondria have to be fresh. They have to be functional. And, you know, mitochondria go bad. And so those mitochondria have to be cleared away. Well, that happens while you sleep. 
And if you don't sleep, then you're not clearing them away. Guess what? You get dementia. So autophagy is essential, but bad food because of the way it acts in, these, in the pathway actually alters your ability to be able to do that. So you can see these eight pathologies are directly linked to all of these chronic diseases. They are at the basis of all these chronic diseases. And the problem is none of those eight are druggable. They're foodable, but doctors don't know that. And they don't know how to fix it. The book will tell you how. And you talk in the book too, because there's so many, um, again, this is confusing for people that know, okay, I know that I can eat better, that nutrition is the key here, that medicines are just masking symptoms. It's not getting to the underlying root causes. Um, but now I don't know if I should go keto or vegan. And I know you address this as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit because that seems to be kind of the latest battle right now in the, the battle royal, absolutely. And the and the the two uh, uh, factions seem to be lined up directly opposite, firing at each other. I do not have a horse in the race. Okay, I am not anti keto. I am not pro keto. I am not anti vegan. I am not uh, pro vegan. I am for food. I am for real food. And the one thing that doing keto right or doing vegan right have in common is that it's all real food. Now you can do keto wrong because there are a whole bunch of ultra processed foods that are now calling themselves keto. In addition, if you're doing keto, you have to be very careful about, you know, getting enough fiber and enough B vitamins, you know, depending on what you're, what you're eating alongside. Green vegetables are essential for keto. And the thing is that most people who are on keto think they can go straight carnivore and ba basically eschew that. And that's not really right. On the vegan side, you know, they, like I said, Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are vegan. And they think that that's all it's about. And so you can eat, you can eat very badly vegan. Um, and vegan, you're missing B12 and you're missing a whole bunch of other uh, 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 cofactors and uh, vitamins that you also need. So both diets, if you're going to go whole hog on either one, require supplementation. So I'm not against them. I mean, if you want to be vegan, be vegan. It's fine. You know, do it right. If you want to be keto, that's okay too. I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. We used to use keto in our uh, uh, obesity clinic for patients who had the most severe insulin resistance that were unresponsive to anything else. So it's not that I'm against it. I'm for it, for the right patient. The question is, does everyone need it? And to that, I think the answer is no. So Verta Health, they are a company that has basically established the ketogenic diet as a method for reversing type two diabetes. It's true. And I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of theirs, okay? And I'm not, I'm not against them, I'm for them, actually. Um, uh, the question is, does everyone need to be on a ketogenic diet? And the answer is no, not everyone. And there's a ways to figure out who does and who doesn't. Okay, so if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And I'm not like that. You know, for me, it's treat the patient. Okay, and every patient is different. And so in the book, I actually tell people in chapter nine how to figure out what's going on with your metabolism, how to actually diagnose yourself, and then figure out what makes the most sense for you. And the problem is that most doctors, don't know how to do that. So you might be able to teach your doctor. 
<laughs> and it's just so empower empowering to be able to do that for themselves, for their families, for their children, how to really treat, diagnose, and then treat themselves with nutrition. You don't need to go get medicine from the doctor. There's so much that you can do. And I think you're so right too, that there's not one diet that fits everybody. But I think, I think you mentioned this too, in the introduction that really what we need to get rid of is the processed food. And, right. you know, ultra processed food is the one thing that doesn't work. That yeah. is the thing that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it has one thing too much and one thing too little. And those two things are really, really big because processed food is added sugar, subtracted fiber. That's the definition of processed food. Added sugar for palatability, subtracted fiber for shelf life. Well, that sugar is flooding the liver and the lack of fiber is starving the gut. Ultra processed food is the problem. Unfortunately, that's what the food industry is selling. And you also have a chapter on this. I just wanna to touch on real quickly. Um, this kind of leads into the whole coronavirus and what people are eating, you know, during the pandemic and see, you know, going to the grocery store and observing what's left on the shelves and, and what's not. That's right. So, um, you know, I lived through the pandemic just like everyone else did. And I was just shocked to see what was missing at the store. You know, toilet paper. I got that, you know. OK, but what else? <laughs> OK, the candy, the pasta. You know, Kraft can't keep up with the macaroni and cheese. They actually said that they can't keep up. So this is a problem because ultra processed food actually makes COVID morbidity and mortality worse. Let's look at the, th um, the, the people who have the worst uh, uh, M&M with respect to uh, COVID. So the elderly, and they have their own reasons. They have you know, defective immune systems to start with because of their age. But let's look at the other three. Um, people of color, the obese, and people with pre-existing conditions, all of which are metabolic syndrome. So let's take those three. What do those three have share in common? And the answer is ultra-processed food. People of color, the obese, and pre-existing conditions. That's ultra-processed food. And there are three things about ultra-processed food that lead to this. The first is ultra-processed food drives high insulin. We talked about insulin before. Well, it turns out insulin works on the cells of your body to increase the expression of a specific protein on the surface of every cell in your body. And that protein is called ACE2, A-C-E-2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. This is an endocrine receptor, which is involved in water transport. And so the virus is so smart that it uses those ACE2 molecules as the injector point. That's its route to inject the RNA into the cell to take it over. So the more ACE2 molecules you have, the more infectious the uh, COVID uh, uh, virus is. So Getting your insulin down can actually reduce your risk for infectivity and, and morbidity. Number two, the short chain fatty acids we mentioned before from fiber, butyrate and propionate, they are immunosuppressive. They keep your immune system and your cytokine response from going hog wild. 
If you're missing those, then basically your immune system is revved up and it is the cytokine response that we have learned actually does you in. It's not the virus, it's the cytokine response that ultimately causes the severe morbidity in the ICU stays and the, and the mortality. So if you could get your butyrate and propionate levels up, you could do a lot to mitigate your risk for dying. And finally, number three, diabetes. The higher your blood glucose, turns out glucose crystallizes around that ACE2 opening and holds it open to make it even easier for the um, COVID uh, um, virus to inject its RNA. So having a high blood glucose, which of course is the manifestation of ultra processed food consumption and insulin resistance, um, puts you at greater risk as well. So all of the things that our ultra processed food is doing to our bodies are basically setting us up. Our chronic disease is putting us at risk for our acute disease, which is not okay. And what we've learned is you can actually get the insulin levels down in nine days by eating real food. So everyone has the capability of improving their risk profile for managing this pandemic and this virus if they would eat right. But the CDC and the NIH have never said a word one about food as being a method for mitigating risk. All they talk about is social distancing, masking, and hand washing. They don't say anything about food. And I think this is an egregious neglect on their part. And we actually called them out with a medical report that my nonprofit, eatreal.org, put out uh, back in October. So I have a bone to pick with the powers in Washington. Yeah, I totally agree. I did not see any leaflet or flyer about eating real food. You know, it's just like you're saying, wash hands, social distancing. I, I really think there's just so many people that don't even know that that could be helping themselves. Right. So, well, we're all out of time. It went by so quickly. I just wanted to ask, is there any last words of wisdom or a takeaway you want to leave with us today that maybe we didn't get to? Sure. Um, so think of it this way. There's a wasp in your attic. What do you do? Do you kill the wasp? <laughs> kill, the wasp. kill the wasp? Or do you find the wasp's nest? Yeah. Okay, because where there's one, there's more than one. Okay, you have to work upstream of the problem in order to solve the problem. Working downstream of the problem only fixes the symptoms of the problem doesn't fix the actual problem. You have to go to root cause, right? And the problem is doctors are not trained to do that. But neither are dietitians, neither are dentists, and neither is anyone else in the food industry or in the pharmaceutical industry or in government, okay? There is a, a, a branch of medicine called functional medicine that is trained you know, to identify root cause. Uh, and, you know, I'm not a functional medicine doctor per se, but I understand where they're coming from and I'm, you know, supportive of it. The point is, you cannot fix a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And we have been barking up the wrong tree for the last 50 years. This book, Metabolical, 
hopefully will start us going up the right tree. I love it. And I'll make sure that I link how to order that. It's out now. So everyone can go out, Amazon, get your copy. I'll make sure I share how to get in touch with you as well. And I just want to say thank you again for all that you're doing. I know you never planned to be in this position and working as hard as you are every day in your retirement, but we really are truly grateful for everything that you're doing. Let me mention to your audience also, um, if you buy the book, you will notice there's no bibliography. That's not true. There is. There are 1,054 references in the bibliography. They're just not hard, uh, uh, in paper. And the reason is because there are 1,054 references, it would be 70 pages and five bucks more per copy. So they li live online. So go to metabolical.com. And that's where you can find not just the references, but events and blogs and uh, links to other people doing the same work. So I'm hoping that you know metabolical.com will become a touchstone for the you know new food movement. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Shiva. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and remember. Life is so much sweeter without sugar. <laughs> <laughs>